Uh, I'm very happy to introduce His Holiness uh, Ridananda uh, Goswami Maharaj, who is a, a very dear disciple of Srila Prabhupada and one of the most senior and uh, respected spiritual leaders of his own movement. In 1969, he met Srila Prabhupada and uh, in a year he got initiation from him. In uh, two following years, he got a sannyasa order. So in the next uh, 2022, Maharaj will be celebrating 50 anniversary of accepting sannyasa order. <laughs> Hare Krishna. <laughs> so Maharaj translated and commented 10, 11, and 12 cantos of Srimad Bhagavatam, completing monumental work of Srila Prabhupada together with Gopi Paranadhara, Ahana Prabhu, which 10th anniversary of departure was just a few weeks ago. So Maharaj is a great scholar. He has a PhD from Harvard University and position of professor in many other universities too. Maharaj explores the topic of consciousness in science. So in the earlier years, he pioneered preaching in South America, and now he's actively preaching in all Latin America and other countries. So for us, it's big fortune, Maharaj, to listen to you today. Hare Krishna, you're welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. So uh, perhaps I will refer to the topics that you sent me, which I thought were interesting. And I will read them. Uh, number one, in your last meeting with students at the Russian-speaking group of Bhaktivedanta University, you quoted Prabhupada saying that Krishna consciousness combines philosophy and religion. And then you said that in your opinion, what the world will accept from ISKCON is a spiritual science but not so much a religion. Could you explain why this is so? Okay. Yes. Uh, I will first explain uh, that I received special mercy from Prabhupada. Just as Prabhupada, uh, the, the first instruction that Prabhupada received from his guru, Bhakti Siddhanta, uh, became the mission of his life to preach in the Western world. And so Prabhupada blessed me so that his, in first, his first instruction to me became the mission of my life. When I joined the Hare Krishna movement, in 1969 in Berkeley, California, I was at the university. And I didn't know whether I should leave the university and just go on the street, you know, and sell things, or whether I should um, stay in the university. So the temple president told me to ask the regional secretary, who was a brahmachari named Tamal Krishna. So I asked him, and he said to me, I don't know, ask Prabhupada. So I wrote a letter to Prabhupada asking him, you know, what I should do. And um, Prabhupada wrote back to me and said, you should complete your education. 
You should complete your education because I want you to present Krishna consciousness to educated people. Also, I received another instruction from Prabhupada in a letter he wrote to me after I took sannyas. And Prabhupada wrote to me, read my books and then explain them in your own words. So if you put these two instructions together, uh, by my own nature, my words tend to be, I, I hope, devotional, but also rational. And uh, so, that, so that I see as my mission. Prabhupada, Prabhupada also gave us Prabhupada gave us a spiritual science, and, and that's, of course, related to another question on the list. Prabhupada gave us a spiritual science. When I joined the movement, my purpose was not to find a warm, loving community because I needed friends. I, that's, I had many friends. And uh, I also wasn't looking for a religion because I had a religion you know, the religion of my parents. It wasn't. So that's not what I was looking for. I was actually looking for a spiritual science. I was looking for a spiritual science. And that's what inspired me, the idea that this is not simply a sectarian religion. This is actually the absolute truth. This is a, this is a spiritual science. And therefore, it's for everyone. So... Um, following Prabhupada's instruction to me, I have tried to present Krishna consciousness in an objective, rational way. And um, to give an example of that, which relates to the next question, second question, uh, attracting intelligent people, and the third question, uh, anyway, For example, there's a very, very popular idea in the Hare Krishna movement that we are presenting externally, not the practice of, for example, chanting the Maha Mantra and Japa and Kirtan or the, the great spiritual science of Bhagavad Gita, Srimad Bhagavatam, not that. But in terms of external culture, how we dress, the recipes we use to cook food, architecture, uh, music, musical style. There's a very popular idea that we are preserving and transmitting to the public an eternal ethnic tradition, an eternal external culture. So that although this word is not used, the idea is that in a sense, we are practicing what I call Vaikuntha Sadhana, that you practice dressing like people in the spiritual world you practice cooking like people in the spiritual world. You, 
We make the same kind of music they make in the spiritual world. And so actually, sadhana bhakti is a process where you are, where you not only practice loving Krishna, or as Lord Chaitanya said, Hare Rinama, Hare Rinama, Hare Rinama, Eva Kevalam, where we, we chant the names of Krishna as the Yuga Dharma, Sankirtan and Japa and so on. But actually, externally, that somehow if you dress in a certain way, if you cook certain recipes, if you play certain musical instruments, that somehow there's great spiritual power in these external things. And therefore, even though it may look very strange to most people outside of India, uh, and in some places, very, very strange, but we should do that anyway, because we are revealing to them the spiritual world. And so the sort of the categorical term that's used for this is Vedic culture, that we are presenting Vedic culture. So in my, I hope, sincere attempt to carry out Prabhupada's order to me, I began to think about these things. I began to think, do we have historical evidence or Shastric evidence from Bhagavad Gita, from Srimad Bhagavatam uh, or Mahabharata even? Do we have clear evidence or from the teachings of the Acharyas that there is a certain external culture, not the spiritual practice of Japa, Kirtan, Shastra, but is there an external culture which is especially spiritual? So that if you dress in a certain way, if you eat certain foods or offer them to Krishna, if you play music in a certain way, somehow you will, you will become more Krishna conscious. And because this is the culture of the spiritual world. My conclusion, after studying these things very carefully in Shastra, is that it's, it, that's simply not true. It's simply not true. And for example, Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna actually gives us a criteria. In other words, devotees always say, for example, all right, if I don't wear a dhoti, can I just wear anything? Can I wear any crazy clothes into the temple? And the answer is obviously no. And why can't you do that? Well, I learned why you can't do that from my mother. I had, you know, Krishna blessed me with very good, loving parents, a mother and father. And when I was a very young boy, on certain holy days, we went to a religion, you know, the, the, the place of our religion. And you had to dress very nicely because you are going to a house of God. When you go to a house of God, you show respect. You show respect. 
And so that is a cultural principle. So I want to make a distinction between ethnic details. For example, in India, they may dress a certain way. And in the West, they may dress a certain way. That is an ethnic detail. But the cultural principle, the cultural principle, which is universal and applies to every culture, whether it's Russian or Indian or Californian, the cultural principle is that when you go to a house of God, you must dress in a way that shows great respect. That shows great respect. That's a cultural principle. Now, I actually looked in the Bhagavatam. Um, Jiva Goswami, who Prabhupada always taught, is, is you know, our primary theologian. And Jiva Goswami wrote a book about, you could say, epistemology. Epistemology means the philosophy of knowledge. Basically, how do you know you know? Under what conditions are you justified in saying that you know something that it's not merely your opinion? And so... Jiva Goswami says that ultimately for the followers of Lord Chaitanya, the, the final source of knowledge is the Bhagavatam. And he spends a lot of time proving that, that for us, the ultimate authority is Bhagavatam and of course Bhagavad Gita. So in the Gita, all that Krishna says about external behavior, external behavior, is that it should be in the mode of goodness. So we should dress in the mode of goodness. Sattva guna, we should offer food in the mode of goodness. Uh, actually, a lot of the Mahaprasadam in ISKCON is not in the mode of goodness. Because Krishna specifically says in the Bhagavad Gita that food that is very spicy, very hot, is in the mode of passion. Krishna also says that food in the mode of goodness is healthy. So if you know if you just if if you live from Mahaprasadam, you probably will not live a long life. Now, of course, we should offer Krishna very, we should offer Krishna very opulent things, but um, but ultimately, even in that famous verse that Prabhupada always quoted, patram pushpam falam toyam, a leaf, a fruit, these are very much satvaguna. So I don't want to fight with the pujaris, you know, because you can never win a fight with a pujari. But the fact is that Krishna, in terms of our behavior, is saying the mode of goodness. So another point I'll bring in here. Uh, if we, Devotees talk constantly about Vedic culture. That's one of the great expressions. How do you say that in Russian, Vedic culture? Vedicheskaya kultura. Vedicheskaya kultura. Right. Yeah, so... The most interesting 
perhaps the most one or perhaps the most interesting thing about Vedic culture is that that expression is not in the Vedas. If you look at the Bhagavad Gita, if you read the Bhagavatam, you will not find a Sanskrit word or a Sanskrit phrase that means Vedic culture. So what do we do with that? Personally, I don't reject it because Prabhupada and other acharis used it. So I don't reject that term. I accept it. But here's a hermeneutic point. Hermeneutic point, hermeneutics means a rational method to understand a sacred text. So we have the Bhagavatam, we have Bhagavad Gita and so on, which they do not use the term Vedic culture. Actually, I mean, you can, you can look for yourself. So that does not mean that we cannot use that expression, but it does mean that you have to give to that non-Shastric expression a Shastric definition. If you, have, if you have a term, let's say Vedic culture, which is not in Shastra, and believe me, it's not. If you have a Vedic term, if you have a term Vedic culture, which is not in Shastra, and you have a definition, which is also not in Shastra, then where are you? You know, as we would say in California, la la land. So so, but if you give to that expression Vedic culture, if you give a definition which is found in Shastra, then you can use the term. So what does Shastra say about external culture. For one thing, the Bhagavatam, which is a great authority, the Bhagavatam says that for a sannyasi, there are basically two options for dress. One is to wear deer skin, uh, which I'm, you know, I'm sure it would be very fashionable in Russia, deer skin. And the other option is uh, to go naked, not to wear anything. Which, well, that's one way to get attention, I guess, in the Hare Krishna movement. So, but what's interesting is, and also brahmacharis. Someone has to explain this to the brahmacharis, right? That they have these two options. Also, uh, brahmacharis should wear a straw belt, a belt made of straw. And, you know, there's all kinds of other things that we obviously don't do. So Lord Chaitanya, Lord Chaitanya taught and his, his intimate disciples taught that the Bhagavatam is our authority. And of course, Bhagavad Gita. And yet, Lord Chaitanya told his followers they could not wear deerskin. Because it's just a detail of time and place. So I, I don't want to take up too much time, but basically, 
if you read everything, we know, for example, that the gopis did not wear saris. We know that because they wore belts. They wore a belt and you don't wear a belt with a sari. For example, we have many paintings uh, of Narada Muni with dark hair, but actually the Bhagavatam in the 10th canto, chapter 70 says that Narada Muni is blonde, you know, like many Russians, he's blonde. Another blonde, like, you know, sort of, you know, Scandinavian blonde is Lord Indra. That's in the Rig Veda, that Lord Indra is blonde. And so, um, so what is Vedic culture? What, what really is Vedic culture? It's not the external things. It's not cooking a certain way. It's not dressing a certain way. It's not, you know, using certain musical instruments because there are no injunctions. In, in the introduction to Isopanishad, Prabhupada says that if in India, he means in this Vedic culture, if in India, if someone tells another person, you must do this, the other person can say, is that a Vedic injunction that I have to do it? So what is really Vedic? And even the word, just one more detail, even the word Vedic is used in a different way in the Bhagavatam. The word Vedic in Sanskrit is uh, Vaidik. Vaidika, same word. So in the Bhagavatam, it's used ironically the same way that Western scholars use it. The word Vaidika in the Bhagavatam means um, Shruti, the oldest level of, of Sanskrit literature, like the Vedas or Upanishads. And in the Chaitanya Charitamrita, the word Vaidika is only used in the phrase Vaidika Brahmana, meaning a karmakanda ritualistic Brahmana. So to use the word Vaidika as a categorical descriptive term that describes everything we do, every, all of our culture, it's not, it's not wrong, it's just an innovation. So what is Vedic? using the word in that way for the whole culture. For Varnashram is Vedic. Varnashram. The Varnashram system is mentioned everywhere in the Vedas. Or the fact that Krishna is the absolute truth. That is Vedic. Krishna says, Vedaisha Sarvair Aham Eva Vedya. So the fact that Krishna is the highest truth, that the entire Vedic culture ultimately is meant to know Krishna, that is Vedic. The practice of bhakti yoga is Vedic, the general practice. But applying this term to external culture, dressing a certain way, cooking with certain recipes, playing a certain kind of music, there's simply no evidence. There's simply no evidence in the Bhagavatam that anyone cares about that. Or, for example, when Lord Chaitanya went on Sankirtan, there's no evidence that he and his followers wore uniforms. Now, it doesn't mean we can't use uniforms, but if we do use them, that's a detail. It's not a general principle. 
It's not one of the basic principles of bhakti yoga to wear a uniform or to wear a certain kind of uniform. It's just a practical strategy that some people believe will help our movement in some way. And so, you know, we can talk about that. So uh, getting back to these questions. um, Now, the reason that people, I believe, will only accept the spiritual science from us is because um, in the material world, very few people are philosophers. Very few people are theologians. And so if you look sociologically or psychologically at how religion functions in this world, like, for example, in Russia, uh, a certain church, Orthodox church, is very much part, for many people, of a national identity. It's part of a national identity. It's part of a political identity in the same way in America. Uh, we find that people that are very strongly identify as Christians tend to have certain political positions also. They tend to be more nationalistic. I'm not criticizing that at this point. I'm, I'm, I'm simply making an, an observation. For example, if you study the history of Russia, which I, I've actually studied the history of Russia because it's, it's a very interesting country. Um, there is an idea which is not completely wrong that in some ways the Russian state is sort of like he has inherited uh, the Eastern Roman Empire. If you look at the fall of Constantinople, which was of course, the capital of the Eastern Roman Empire, which survived a thousand years after the fall of Rome, which is very interesting. Uh, so Constantinople fell on in 1453. In 1453. And by the time Constantinople fell, it was sort of inseparably the Eastern Roman Empire was inseparable from the Eastern Orthodox Church. And so therefore, when Constantinople fell, this was a major disaster. I mean, it was very shocking. And and so many of the leaders of the Eastern Orthodox Church which traced their lineage all the way back to Jesus and back to the Roman Empire, uh, they went to Russia and they went to the Ukraine. And so there is an idea that in some way, Russia, through their Orthodox Church, is somehow preserving the, uh, the highest truth because of course, the, the, the Eastern churches, the Orthodox churches, believe that um, the Western church deviated in different ways. And so you see this, this when, when, when you have this merging of a political empire with a particular religion, and it becomes very hard to separate these two things. And so 
And then you have nationalism. You have, I mean, Russia, like everywhere, many people are nationalists. You know, they love their country and they identify a particular religion with their country, that you can't separate our country from this religion. They believe that. And you find Americans uh, who believe that and make arguments about why America should be a Christian country despite multiculturalism. And then you have another thing. I mean, in a sense, the strongest attachment that people have in this world, really, uh, tends to be to their family. You see, when people get older, they just want to be around their family. They want to die in the arms of their family. And so when your family, your mother, your father, your grandmother, your grandfather, they belong to a certain religion, it gives you a very powerful material attachment to that religion. Just as you cannot separate a certain religion from a type of nationalism where you are supposed to love your country, also for most people, most people are not philosophers. For most people, it's not possible to separate their family attachment from a certain religion. And so if, if you are trying to promote a new religion, a new culture, like don't dress like that, dress this way, don't have this religion, have that religion, because we have the absolute truth. And... Um, most people are not really philosophers. They're not looking for the absolute truth. They're just looking for a good life. They want to live with people they love. They want to be loved. They want to feel that they're safe in their country and, and so on. So that's what most people want. If you look at the early days of the Hare Krishna movement where people were just joining like Christ, those days are over. I mean, Krishna, that's a whole other topic, which Krishna explains in chapter six of the Bhagavad Gita, how people come automatically, spontaneously to Krishna because of past life, because of their past lives. He says, Purvabhya Sena Taiva, It is because in a past life they practice Krishna consciousness, and it's only for that reason. Krishna says, It is only for that reason. Prabhupada himself said that in order to start the Hare Krishna movement, Krishna sent some of his past life devotees to different countries around the world. And these devotees just heard Hare Krishna and, you know, they reported for duty. That's not the situation now in most places in the world. It's simply not the situation. The Western world is not at all filled with past life devotees, believe me. And um, so therefore, we have to face the reality. If we see that in many parts of the world, especially first world countries, the movement is not really growing very much. It's not, I mean, with Western people. It's not, it's not really very successful at all. It's not an important movement. It's not a relevant movement. Most people in America, if you say Hare Krishna, their answer is, what is that? If you say, I'm a Hare Krishna, 
Most people will say, what does that mean? So there's two things we can do in response to this. We can just say, well, we don't care because we have prophecies. So we don't have to think. We don't have to think. We don't have to be intelligent. We don't have to analyze anything. We can just sit around and, you know, eat olive and sweet rice and wait for the prophecies. Or, you know, we can turn our brains on and start thinking, which is what I suggest we do. So um, for people to accept another religion in normal conditions is very, very, very difficult. In fact, if you study history, you can actually study thousands of years of history under what circumstances, in what conditions do you find large numbers of people changing from this religion to something else? We can actually study that. And basically, it happens under two conditions, as far as I can see. One condition is you just go and kill everyone that doesn't join your religion. And, uh, you know, a lot of that was done in the expansion of certain religions that we don't, you know, we don't have to mention them now, but basically you give people two choices. You join our religion or we kill you and we kill you in a very nasty way. So that is very effective historically. However, we cannot morally justify it, and it's not at all an option for us. I mean, even if it were an option, which it absolutely is not, it's not something we would ever do. So what's the other situation in which religions actually spread in large numbers? It's when people, it's when you have a country where large numbers of people believe that what you are bringing to them is a better culture, it's a higher culture. I'd like to give some examples. Uh, Hinduism, what we could call Hinduism, approximately 2,000 years ago, very roughly 2,000 years ago, spread very quickly in Southeast Asia. That's why you have um, many places in Southeast Asia that have Sanskrit names, like, for example, the island of Bali, which is Bali Maharaj, or the largest island in Indonesia is called Sumatra, which in Sanskrit means very big. Or in, in, in the center of Jakarta, the capital of Indonesia, there's a big statue of Parthasarati, of Krishna driving Arjuna's chariot. So, or, or the old name of Thailand is Shyam, Siam, which is Shama, Shama Sundar. So if you look at those cultures, if you look at the indigenous cultures, let's say of Indonesia or of Thailand or of other countries, um, clearly India was more advanced. Clearly India was more advanced. Intellectually, uh, I mean, in every cultural sense, India was a very advanced country. It was a much 
richer country. And so it, it's just like nowadays, for example, you get people in many countries in the world that think, yeah, I want to go to Hollywood or I want to go to New York. I mean, personally, I've seen them enough. But, but so culture spreads when people perceive. And also one other thing I should mention, that even under those circumstances where a culture is just very widely perceived as being more advanced, richer, more sophisticated, there's another ingredient also. And that is the culture or the, the society which is going to accept a new religion tends to be polytheistic and not monotheistic. Because if you look at polytheistic religions, they're not bhakti traditions. Polytheism does not inspire bhakti. It tends to be more like Prabhupada said, you know, you make an offering, you get some re material reward. And if you look, for example, at Greek mythology, if you look at Homer, the Iliad and the Odyssey, the gods are not very lovable. They're kind of, eh, they're, they're sort of like, I don't know, like out of control teenagers. And so polytheism as a general rule, you know, maybe some exceptions, but as a general rule, polytheism does not inspire devotion. And what you find is that it's much, much more difficult to spread a new religion in a monotheistic civilization because people really think they're worshiping God. And so if you look at the spread, for example, of Islam to some of the most fanatical Christian areas, which were uh, North Africa, North Africa was fanatically Christian. Uh, the Middle East was fanatically Christian. Uh, Lebanon and Syria were very heavy Christian cultures. The Muslims came and they just, you know, they did what they often did, uh, you know, and, and, and by force, by violence, imposed it. Some people might have been converted by philosophy. Ironically, some people were converted because they became convinced that Christianity had given up monotheism because of the Trinity doctrine. And uh, I don't think that's very far from the truth. I don't, I mean, personally, I don't think the Trinity doctrine is strictly speaking monotheistic, but that's a different discussion. So now what happened then, a lot of Muslim areas were conquered by uh, Attila the Hun. But if you look at the Hun culture, it was not monotheistic. They didn't have this strong monotheistic religion, so they became Muslims. Another example is that if you look at the, what are called the Scythian invasions of India, invaders that came from many uh, uh, former Soviet republics, like, uh, like um, uh, Tajikistan, uh, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, you know, all those places. 
all, all those places uh, in Central Asia, uh, some of those people invaded India and they were called in English, you say Scythians. In Indian languages, they pronounced it Shaka. So if you read the Chaitanya Charitamrita, where Prabhupada gives the date that certain events took place, and he says, you know, in the modern calendar, it's this year, and then what he calls the Shakabda. Abda in Sanskrit or Bengali means year. So the Shakabda means the Shaka year. So these are people that had tremendous control in, in, in also in West Bengal. But these people, many of them, converted to Hinduism. In fact, the Rajputs in uh, Rajasthan, who defended Hinduism from the Muslims, they were former Scythians. They were former Central Asian invaders. Also, according to scholars, there was another invasion about which we have very little information, which took place roughly around the time of Jesus, called the Kusha, the Kushan, the Kushan invasion. But again, they became Hindus. Why did they become Hindus? Because um, they were polytheists. They didn't have a strong monotheistic religion. And if you look at, um, then there was a Muslim invasion of India. And of course, they converted almost exclusively lower class people. So in other words, we can actually study under what conditions people convert in large numbers to a different religion. And to put it very simply, if you look at the, the conditions we have in Europe or Russia or America or you know, Canada, it's not going to happen. It's, it's not going to happen. And in fact, it's not happening. And so, to me, this is yukta vairagya. It does not mean that Krishna consciousness cannot be successful in establishing a wonderful uh, renaissance in Kali Yuga. But if the idea is that we are going to spread an ethnic culture, like you dress in a certain way, to give an example, to give an example, it's very easy to prove that cultural barriers are much more difficult than legal barriers. And you just have to compare two countries, China and France, La France. If you compare China and France, in France, there are really no, there are no serious legal barriers in France. But the movement there is, I mean, I wanna say maybe like a re, kind of a disaster, it's, I mean, there are some very good devotees. There are some very good devotees there, and there are some very good projects. Numayapur now, they have some young devotees who I've heard are doing very, very nice service. But in general, in general, in France, not happening. Now, look at China. In China, you know, it's illegal to have a religion. And yet there are thousands and thousands of Chinese devotees. So what this obviously proves that if someone actually is thinking is that cultural barriers are much more difficult even than legal barriers. 
in many situations. And so clearly there are major, major cultural barriers. Our goal is not to colonize Russia. To culture, it's not to make Russia a cultural colony of India, especially when half of the culture we call Vedic culture actually comes from the Muslims. In terms of dress, in terms of recipes. So you have this strange situation where devotees think they are promoting eternal Vedic culture when a lot of what they're promoting externally, not philosophically, is actually Muslim culture. So it's a little bizarre. You know, Prabhupada said, you don't have to change anything. You just have to accept Krishna. But are we really giving the public that message? When people in Russia or America or Canada or Brazil, when people think of the Hare Krishna movement is the first thing they think, simply that, oh, I don't have to change anything to become a Hare Krishna. The Hare Krishnas are just like me. All I have to do is read these books and, you know, chant the name of Krishna. Otherwise, my life will be the same. Uh, anyway, I think you know the answer to that. So, going back to those questions I was supposed to answer. So, I think that people will accept a spiritual science but if you look at history, if you look at psychology, if you look, look at, at uh, sociology, uh, I don't think so. So, uh, and Prabhupada asked me, that was Prabhupada's request to me, to present Krishna consciousness intelligently to intelligent people, and that's what I'm trying to do. So now the next point was, um, okay, why we have to attract intelligent people, which Prabhupada was very concerned about. He wrote several letters to me emphasizing this point. Why is it important to attract intelligent people? Because the whole, if I can use that term, Vedic culture, the whole Varnashram culture is led by the brahmanas. It's led by the brahmanas. And Prabhupada noticed, actually, that, and he said this, Prabhupada said this, so as they say, don't kill the messenger. But Prabhupada said that he was noticing, he noticed that so many people back then were joining the movement, and he said that many, many, many of them were not brahmanas. They were more like shudras. And so what's the problem? Is that sudras cannot lead Vedic civilization. It just, it doesn't work. What we're finding now is that, of course, I don't know so much about Russia, but at least in North America, South America, Europe, uh, what we find is that um, 
many, many devotees who, uh, they're not very serious about following principles, not so serious about philosophy. Even when Prabhupada was here, he was frustrated because his own disciples were not reading his books. I mean, some of us were reading, but many of them were not reading. So Prabhupada came to recreate, reconstitute, reestablish a Brahminical society of Gaudiya Vaishnavas who could lead humanity. And so if we don't appeal to intelligent people, inevitably, because we live in the age of democracy, democracy is God, uh, inevitably people, let's say, who are not so intelligent uh, will have extraordinary power in the Hare Krishna movement because there is no one else. People who may not be so philosophical, people whose approach to religion may be more dogmatic. So if we want to have a truly Brahminical movement and a movement that attracts intelligent people who can then empower this movement to save the world, we have to present Krishna consciousness in a rational, intelligent way that's based on actual Shastra. For example, I was traveling, preaching several years ago and some other country, and uh, there was another ISKCON guru, well-known ISKCON guru, Sanyasi, who happened to be there. So we met for lunch, and he insisted to me that the Bhagavatam teaches that um, India is simply a reflection of the spiritual world in terms of, I mean, you see it in ISKCON art. You see, for example, pictures of Radharani with her head covered or the gopis with their head covered. There's no statement in Shastra that women cover their head. It probably is Muslim influence. If you look at South Indian temples, the sculptures on the outside, a lot of the time the women don't even cover the upper part of their body, not to speak of their heads. So, so this guru and sannyasi said to me that India, external India, with all of its huge Muslim influence, that external India was just a reflection of the spiritual world. And I said, I don't think so. And he gave me a word, pratibimba, which in Sanskrit means a reflection, literally a counter image. So he get, I looked it up, and it's not there. And I mean, he's a good devotee. He's not a bad, he's a good devotee. He's helping a lot of people. He's serving Prabhupada in many ways. But he's also teaching things that simply aren't true. They're not based on Shastra. So... Um, so that's my personal inspiration, that we need to attract intelligent people. Intelligent people are not looking for a new religion. They're looking for a spiritual science. And I think that's what we should be looking for also. Otherwise, at least in America, 
not everywhere, but in some places, you know, I, I joke that ISKCON has become the movement. ISKCON has become the religion that I left to join ISKCON. I mean, do the numbers. How much for every dollar that ISKCON spends on education, how much is spent on rituals? I'm not speaking about Russia. I don't know about Russia, but I know about many other countries. Where are the high schools? ISKCON, ISKCON is not known for being a powerful educational movement. We have schools, we teach our own children. At least in America, it's, it's, it's more, you know, having temples with mostly Indian congregation performing elaborate rituals. So, I mean, that's mostly what goes on in Hare Krishna temples in North America. So the point is, uh, where are the schools? Where are the schools? Why is it that for every dollar spent for education, ISKCON probably spends $1,000 or I haven't, you know, $500, whatever it is, for rituals and temples? Prabhupada personally told me, Prabhupada personally privately told me, and he actually told everyone that it's much more important to um, give knowledge. In fact, uh, everyone quotes that verse in Bhagavad Gita 434, try to learn the truth by approaching a spiritual master. But if you look at that verse in Sanskrit, what Krishna is actually saying, he begins that verse by saying tadvidhi, which simply means know that. So the obvious question is, what is that? What is that that you have to know? And that, of course, explained in the previous verse, 433. And so that, which you learn from the seers of the truth, is that knowledge is more important than rituals. That's what you learn by approaching a bona fide guru. That knowledge is more important than rituals. And I mean, it doesn't mean we, that we reject the rituals. We don't reject them. But Prabhupada said the temples are mostly for giving knowledge, books. So where are the schools? Now they're starting a uh, uh, Bhaktivedanta, I think, um, university or something like that in Russia, which is very good. That's a very positive, encouraging sign. But if you look at ISKCON around the, in America, for example, where the movement began, where are the schools? There are a few schools, and they're very good in Alachua and Dallas. They're very nice schools, but I don't think they go all the way. I don't know if they go all the way through high school, but mostly we don't have schools. There's some very good devotees and good schools, too, that I know of in North America. But a tiny, tiny percentage of the children who are born to devotees in Europe and North America go to devotee schools, a very small percentage. So anyway, I'll just give one last example, and then maybe we can, we can have time for questions. Uh, no, maybe I won't. So let me look at that other 
question. Um, oh, I think I, I think I addressed. I think Vaishnav culture can become prestigious and influential if we understand what it really is. If we understand what Vaishnav culture actually is. So, uh, Amala, should we take questions? Uh, yeah, if you like. Uh, Maharaj, um, I would like once again to turn you to the point which you already partially covered. You said yeah. that we need a rational presentation of Krishna consciousness as a spiritual science. So, could you please tell us on some examples or generally uh, how it might look in a practice, preaching to scientists, preaching in universities. What is it? What is it? A rational presentation. <laughs> Could you elaborate a little bit about that? <clears throat> okay. Well, we can begin with philosophy. We live in a very inspiring time in this sense. There, there really is a large-scale intellectual revolution going on at the present time in the world against materialism. You know, fanatical materialism, atheistic materialism, as, as you know, with Karl Marx, uh, was a reaction to fanatical religion in the Western world. So you had one kind of, you know, that's the third law of motion, I think, of Newton, that every action produces an equal and opposite reaction. This is also called the pendulum effect. So because you had this heavy, heavy, this fanatical religion, it produced dialectically its opposite. It's equal and opposite. You have this fanatical materialism. And so now, because like the pendulum on the religious side, at least in the West, religion is no longer a threat. It no longer has very much power. And so therefore, many people are, are seeing that this fanatical materialism, like to be a good scholar, to be a scientist, you have to be an atheist. Many, many scientists and philosophers are saying that's just not true. That's ridiculous. And so even the idea that, for example, to, to prove that something is true, you have to empirically demonstrate it, that was rejected by academic philosophers 60 years ago. The public is not very intelligent, so it takes them a while to catch up. So Prabhupada said we have to show life comes from life. Unfortunately, that is, I mean, or I say the good news is there are many, many scholars who are trying to prove that life comes from life, or at least life doesn't necessarily come from dead matter. The problem is all those people are not part of the Hare Krishna movement. So there, there's a growing number of philosophers, psychologists, biologists, you know, physicists, historic, a growing number of people are saying that philosophical materialism is just bad philosophy. It does not efficiently explain 
the world as we experience it. And so this is an amazing time. There is, on YouTube, there's, there are thousands of lectures by brilliant people, really brilliant people who are destroying philosophical materialism. So I would say that's one aspect of an intelligent presentation, that as far as possible for us, you know, we are all different, but as far as possible, we should try to explain intelligently what we're doing. Or, for example, we, why do we follow four principles? When I first took sannyas in 72, Prabhupada wrote me a letter. And he said, do not present Krishna consciousness as rules and regulations. It's the most sublime philosophy. There are very powerful scientific reasons why people should follow the, follow the four regulative principles or at least follow them as much as they can. There is, there is very powerful evidence from psychology, from sociology, from philosophy. There's very powerful evidence that it's healthy and we will have a much better life if we follow these principles. So it's not just rules, it's science. It's anthropology. And then, you know, the philosophy of Krishna. There's so many ways that we can explain to people. And here's another point. If anyone in the public asks me, why do you do something? Like, why do you dress that way? Why do you eat certain foods? Why do you chant Hare Krishna? In my own life, in my own life, I'm confident that I can give an intelligent answer or I can give an intelligent explanation of everything that I'm doing in my life because I only do things that are intelligent to do. Otherwise, why would I do them? So, Maharaj, uh, am I right that rational presentation of uh, Krishna consciousness doesn't necessarily mean using the scientific language, but it means at least using a common sense. Yes, yes. Right? Yes, yes. Duh. Yes, because actually uh, very few people understand scientific language. Philosophy. Philosophy is the great equalizer because philosophy really stands in the center. So if you can understand, not necessarily very technically, but if you can basically understand why science today is really favoring Krishna consciousness, not materialism. Science today is actually showing that materialism is absurd in many ways. And so if we can just understand the basic point and explain it to people in common sense language, that's fine. Maharaj, uh, you um, last time in a meeting with uh, Bhaktivedanta University students, you told a story how about your preaching in the Cam in the Harvard University that uh, when you came, you found that um, uh, these people, professors, uh, they. <clears throat> 
I perceived a devotees as a freaks. Yeah, danced, as a joke. It was yeah, a big joke. As a big joke who danced and chanted around the campus of that Harvard College. Maharaj, could you tell us how did you influence their opinion? <laughs> Actually, I was going to tell that story and I didn't, but I guess I should. Um, yeah, when I went to Harvard, I was in the department, the faculty of Sanskrit and Indian studies. That's what they called it then. And I found out very soon that the Hare Krishna devotees were a big joke there because they would go, you know, they would come to what's called Harvard Square. It's like the main plaza, you know, the Harvard Square. And they would, you know, run around and jump and everything. And, and so in at Harvard, in the in the Sanskrit and in Hindu and Indian studies, everyone thought it was it was a big joke. And then I was there, I went there, and by by Krishna's arrangement, I was the best student there in that department. In fact, they announced at Harvard, uh, the, the head of our department announced at our graduation that I had gotten the fastest. PhD in the history of that of Harvard, that Harvard department. And so the re and I went there, I went there as a devotee. I didn't hide the fact that I was a devotee. I had neck beads, I had, you know, Joppa bag. Everyone knew I was a devotee, but I was just kind of normal. And I was nice to people. And um, twice I had the entire department, that means all the professors all of the graduate students came to my house to take prasadam and talk to devotees twice, all the professors and all the students. And not only that, twice, two times, Harvard actually published my writing. I gave a paper, they, they had a conference on translation, on translating from Sanskrit. And so because I had translated a lot of the Bhagavatam, uh, they asked me to speak at this Harvard conference. And so I gave a talk defending Prabhupada's translation style, which tends to be not literal. And so I, I gave an, a, you know, an academic talk uh, defending Prabhupada's translation style and showing that, that he was very faithful to the tradition. And so, and then there's something called the Harvard Oriental Series, which is this very prestigious, exclusive series uh, where Harvard publishes books about Asia. And it's uh, in the last hundred, in, in the last 130 years, they published 90 books, so less than one book per year. And so they just published the number 91, which was my dissertation. So this Harvard Oriental series, which has been going on for over hundred years, published my writings you know, as a book. So uh, I made many friends there and they were nice people. So, um, I think it's, it's definitely possible to spread Krishna consciousness. In fact, I think we have a, a big advantage in the sense that this really is ultimately 
the greatest philosophy. And we have a very powerful practice. But um, this idea that everyone is just going to bow down to Hindu Muslim ethnicity, all we have to do is show up on the street, you know, in these exotic clothes and bang on cartels and drums and people are going to surrender. I mean, some people may surrender, but the idea that this is going to change Russia or change America, uh, I don't see any evidence of that. Uh, Maharaj, we have uh, one question in the chat. We have two hands of devotees uh, here. So, and one additional question from Ajita Chitanya Prabhu. Who will oh my God, it's in ask, Russian. Uh, ask in English. Yeah, so we have at least four <laughs> questions. Four questions ahead. And we have maybe 15, 20 minutes. So try to... Yeah, I'll try to fit it in. I'll be disappointed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so... Uh, Ajit uh, Chitanya Prabhu, please, your question. First of all, I'm very appreciative for your lecture and actually for your intelligence view on Hare Krishna movement. Uh, personally, I am right now more have a questions than answers after your lecture. So uh, I have short questions. So uh, the first one, can I... Uh, read something from you uh, just for development uh, this way of uh, what you talk in this lecture it's first uh, questions the second one um, uh, do you have any argue with the uh, other your god brothers about how to spread the krishna consciousness uh, and that way you're talking about and uh, the last questions uh, that uh, for example how in intelligence way we can explain to the ordinary people uh, why we are making these tilak marks. And for example, we're wearing the shikas because in the uh, scientific way, I didn't heard that somebody explained that we need shika, but Prabhupada always uh, tell that we have this flag, remember, in the in the very beginning. And that's how you can see the devoted tilaka and shikas and the bolt heads. Yes. Thank you so much, Maharaj. Maharaj, Thanks. is it? Maharaj, as a moderator, I, I, I suggest to concentrate on the third question of Ajita Chitanya Prabhu uh, in the course of our limits of time. Okay, I'll, say one, one, yeah, I'll just give no one problem, sentence. No problem. No, I'll just give you one sentence for the first two. As far as my writings, go to hdgoswami.com. And that's all there. And the second one was... Um, Arguments. Arguments with other God brothers. Oh, uh, not, I mean, some, there are different approaches. Prabhupada said to me, actually, when one time after my zone, Latin America defeated Radha Damodar in the December book marathon, and then Tamal Krishna and I went to see Prabhupada, and he said, I like this competition. So, so I recognize that I have God brothers who are, you know, they're very nice devotees, they're sincere, they have a different approach. I think that I'm right. But so let's all just do our best service and then Krishna will show us. And then as far as things like, I mean, there's a very, I wrote a paper, which I could send to you through Amala, that uh, Prabhupada said that the reason he wanted devotees to cut their hair is because he was afraid that people would think we were hippies. Now, this is very interesting because back then, 
we thought, oh, that'd be very nice if the hippies identify with us and they'll join the movement. Why was Prabhupada so afraid? He says this many times. It was really a very serious concern Prabhupada had that people not think we were hippies. I mean, he was much more concerned than we were. Why? Because I think the, the answer, a clear answer is that ISKCON, as it developed on 26 Second Avenue and so on, was for Prabhupada really plan B. In the sense that if, if you look at all of Prabhupada's letters that he writes before he came to America, if you look at the letters he writes when he first comes to New York, Prabhupada's original idea was that he would somehow attract leading citizens. Because Prabhupada grew up, Prabhupada lived you know, almost all his life in, in the British Empire. Under queen, you know, under you know, kings and queens, and so therefore, Prabhupada was very much. If you look at the letters, it's all there. Yajadacharitishesas, whatever the great person does, the common people follow. And so, Prabhupada was writing to the leading people, but they did not respond. And then Hayagriva came and Kirtananda, and so then it just developed in a different way. As this comes. But my conviction is that Prabhupada clearly never gave up his original idea. He never gave up plan A. And that what he ultimately really wanted was to get leading people to join. And Prabhupada was convinced that if we become known as hippies, the leading people will never join us. Prabhupada actually said, it's in a paper I wrote, Prabhupada was talking about the first deviation of Kirtananda. And Prabhupada wrote a letter in which he said, actually, there is no rule against long hair and beard. He said, there is no rule against it, but I don't want the public to think you're hippies. So what else was mentioned? You, you mentioned something else, I think. It was about uh, how we scientifically explained uh, why we need because in Tilak, for example. Yeah. To me, um, the essence of Tilak is, you could call it Harinama Nyasa. In other words, placing the Lord's holy names all over your body. And so as we know, Prabhupada proved that if you're going out on Sankirtan, you don't have to use, you know, sell books or whatever. So what I do every day is that, I mean, and I do this every time I bathe, actually, is that I place the holy names on my body. I personally do not feel comfortable, I have to admit, going out on the street with, you know, T-Lock, because at least where I live in America, most people think that, you know, I'm a Martian or something. You know, Mars attacks. So, but I always put the holy name. To me, it's very important to always keep Krishna's names on my body. So to me, that's the real point. It's, it's putting the holy name on your body and remembering that your body belongs to Krishna. Your body is Krishna's energy and your body is meant to serve Krishna. Uh, Maharaj, we should, uh, yes. Uh, please continue if you're not finished. Uh -huh. In India, everyone like puts their card, you know, on their forehead. You know, everyone has something, but, but in the West, I don't know about Russia, but in America, it's just, you know, it's, 
It's not something that people do. So I'm not saying never use TLOC. I'm just saying that, uh, anyway. So what's the next point? Machirasa uh, Pava in chat, he writes, Prajita Kumar Prabhu, you can read in Russian, there is Russian text, and I'm going to read it in Maharaj. Maharaj, why should I... I understood that. Uh, I'm, I'm joking. Yeah, go ahead, <laughs> 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 Why, uh, why Shila disciples who had personal instructions for him uh, do not unite with each other? For example, Daneshwara Maharaj brought the concept of communal way of life. This was picked up by ordinary people in Russia and Ukraine. Uh, they summed up their philosophy based on the books of Srila Prabhupada and they now make communes, communities, their own settlements according to the principle simple life and uh, high thinking. So uh, now you're given the technology how to make Krishna consciousness the dominant religion or science, but in our society everyone is scattered rather your technology will be used by someone other than his devotees. Do we have, uh, now we have a lot of theory, few practitioners, or it's, it's just uh, my perception. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, I, I feel that I'm united. I'm a loyal member of ISKCON. Prabhupada encouraged us all to think creatively to do our own programs. And so whatever I'm doing, I see it as a contribution to ISKCON. And I'm sure other leaders believe they're also making their contribution. So if we're all serving the same mission, I think we are united. As far as Dhaneshwara, that's another topic. Um, I know there's always been this, you know, certain devotees have emphasized we have to do Varnashram. There's a very simple reason why it's very difficult. I mean, the, the ashrams we already have, you know, we have grihastas, brahmacharis, sannyasis. We have ashram. It's really not varnashram. It's really the varnas we're talking about. And there's a very simple reason why it's almost impossible now to reestablish the varnas. And that simple reason is called the industrial revolution. Because the varna system is based on an agrarian economy a land-based economy. And so, yes, I mean, you can always find a few people. Let's go here. Let's go there. Let's go somewhere in Russia. Let's go to the Amazon and let's start a little community and protect some cows. That's very nice. You know, it's very nice, but very few people in the world really care about that. And so the way Prabhupada trained me is not just let's go do something nice. Let's do a nice little project. The way Prabhupada trained me is we have to change the world. So the fact, for example, there are, uh, you know, a nice little group of devotees somewhere in America or Russia or Brazil, and they live on the land and they're living very simply and maybe they have a few cows. Who cares? I mean, how many people in the world really care about that? Again, they're nice devotees. They're doing nice service. I respect them. But in a, if you look at the big picture, how many people care that in some remote place, 
there's a you know a handful of Hare Krishnas who grow their own food. I mean, that is not headline news. And also, if you, if you look at, I mean, it's good. It's a very nice thing. I, I offer them my respect for doing nice service. But the way Prabhupada trained me, I'm thinking, how do we change the world? That's the way Prabhupada trained me. And so, you know, that's nice that Dhaneshwar is doing these things. But if you look at Prabhupada's process, Prabhupada established very powerful urban preaching, and then he used those resources to create communities in the country, simple communities. But because you had powerful urban preaching, we could send thousands of people to visit those places. So, um, Hare Krishna. So, is there another question? Thank you, Maharaj. We have. Uh one more question from Ananda Manjari Mataji. Ananda Manjari? Ananda, Ananda oh, Manjari Mataji. Oh, Ananda Manjari. Okay. Ananda Manjari, uh, Mataji, yes. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna. Коротко, пожалуйста. Hare Krishna. Если можно, коротенько, пожалуйста. Примите мои поклоны. У меня два вопроса есть. Один вопрос – это откуда пошло такое вот… У меня ощущение, что в Исконе больше защиты мужчинам, брахмачаре, а не категориям таких, как старики, женщины и дети. Дайте мне сразу перевести. Подождите, подождите, давайте я по частям, а то я просто не запомню. Махарадж, I have a personal feeling that in our ISKCON we see uh, more emphasis on protection of brahmacharis or men rather than protection of women, old age people and right. children. Дальше? Very good point. Very good point. Yeah, so... Yeah, that's a, that is a problem. Um, I know, for example, I started my wonderful deviation called Krishna West. And, um, and actually, it, would, it, it really wouldn't exist without the women. You know, I, I think there's somehow there's this irrational fear among some devotees that the women are somehow these sort of They're really, you know, underneath their saris, there are these Amazon warriors who are going to, you know, destroy everything. <laughs> It's just my, my personal experience is, my personal experience is that the women are great souls. You know, many of them, they're great souls, they're wonderful devotees. And my experience with hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of women, is if you treat them with respect and dignity, And, 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 and Krishna conscious love, that they do the right thing. They do the right thing. The women are not dangerous. They're actually, they're half of our movement. And so, um, yeah, I, I think that, uh, and these people, these people think, you know, women are this, women are that. I mean, to me, clearly they, they have some kind of problem, personal problem they should probably investigate. But my experience is that If you treat women with respect, dignity, love, appreciation, 
they are wonderful devotees. And they will, I think, and, and again, I'm not talking about Russia, although I have some suspicions, but I know, I know in North America, the biggest, I'm convinced, the biggest mistake in the history of ISKCON was the treatment of women. Because when Prabhupada came, Prabhupada said that if you don't get the women, you don't get the men. And so by discouraging so many women, so many intelligent, powerful, Krishna conscious women either left the movement or distanced themselves from the movement and the men went after them. So I think if you can point to the biggest disaster in the history of ISKCON that crippled the movement in the Western world, I think it's a treatment of women. And, you know, because there are too many people that think, well, uh, you know, you're not, you're not your body. No one, no one in the world preaches you're not your body as much as ISKCON. ISKCON is the movement. It is the religion in the world that says you're not your body, but you are your clothes, which is, Actually, it's better to be your body than your clothes because the body is actually closer to the soul. But also, you know, for too many devotees, and I think this is a very unfortunate hypocrisy, if you are a woman, you are your body. And so, you know, you would think that if we really understand we are not the body, women in ISKCON should be treated with there should be nowhere in the world that women receive better treatment than in ISKCON. Because ISKCON should be the place where we understand more than anyone that all these people and women's bodies, they are actually eternal souls. They're part of Krishna. They are dear to Krishna. So um, I have welcomed men and women to Krishna West. There's no discrimination. Everyone is just treated like a soul. And what I've found is that many intelligent women are joining us. And, you know, at least half of our leaders in Krishna West are women. No one has fallen down. No one is becoming a lusty Amazon monster. You know, there, there's no problem. The women are publishing my books. They're leading preaching programs, and no one has fallen down. There are no fall downs. There are loving relationships between devotees, and everyone treats everyone else just as a, as a devotee of Krishna. So, so anyway, that's my answer. Мы можем уже здесь вот завершить. Я просто смотрю на наши часы. У меня, второй, бы... у меня еще один вопрос есть. Yes, yes, the other question. Yeah, давайте коротко, Благодарю пожалуйста. вас. Да, и мы закончим. Уже. Uh, еще я сама распространяю книги, и мой вопрос может быть предвзятым. Переведите, Малачандра. Махарадж, I'm engaged in book distribution, so I... I feel that I may have a certain bias inside of me. Я когда изучаю книги Шилпраупады, у меня естественным образом выделяются такие моменты, что и я отметила для себя, что Шилпраупада сказал, что центр деятельности общества сознания Кришны это распространение книг Шилпраупады. I study books 
I study I study Shula Prabhupada books and I found in his books such a statements that uh, book distribution is the central activity of our movement. A am I properly understand the idea of Prabhupada? Shula Prabhupada говорил, что я я написал эти книги на 10 тысяч лет вперед, и поэтому это основа нашей проповеди в Искон. Prabhupada said that I wrote these books for uh, uh, next upcoming 10,000 years and it should be uh, taken as a basis for our movement. Все, mm -hmm. правильно ли я понимаю, Махарадж? И, ну, дайте свои комментарии, пожалуйста. Буду очень so, Махарадж, am I properly understand uh, these words of Shula Prabhupada? Could yes. Yeah, yes, duh. But Prabhupada... Prabhupada also wrote to me, as I said before, that um, read my books and explain them in your own words. So I, Prabhupada, there's no question. Prabhupada has much more spiritual potency than any of us. There's no question about that. And, you know, I hear from Prabhupada every day and it's just, there's no one like Prabhupada. I mean, I mean, he, you know, he's the most powerful Vaishnava because of his purity. At the same time, if I see, as I do see, that most people have difficulty reading Prabhupada's books, even when Prabhupada was here, he used to always complain because his disciples didn't read his books. I mean, some of us did, but a lot of devotees didn't. And so I see my duty, because Prabhupada gave me that order, is to try to build bridges to Prabhupada's books. I mean, I, I don't think that I'm saving people. I think that I'm simply trying to bring people to great souls who can save them. And so uh, I've had many, many people tell me, devotees and non-devotees, and uh, I hope this is not blasphemous, that, for example, when they read the Bhagavad Gita I presented, it really, really helped them. It really helped them to understand a lot of things. And so, but ultimately the goal is for people to connect with Prabhupada. So I believe, it's just my view, that we should do very serious marketing and we should try to present to people literature that they can read, that they can understand, and that will bring them to the shelter of Prabhupada. Because ultimately, you know, no one can explain Krishna consciousness like Prabhupada. I mean, he has the potency. Prabhupada personally told me, privately, that there was never a time when he didn't know Krishna. And so uh, every day when I hear Prabhupada's teachings, I'm just amazed how clearly and powerfully he presents the truth because of his own complete realization. At the same time, Prabhupada ordered me to explain these things in my own words. And my words, in many cases, are the words of other people in the society in which I live. So it's building bridges. Uh, thank you, Maharaj, for your thoughts, for your experience. And in fact, uh, I would like to ask Vajra Kumar Prabhu to uh, 
say a few uh, words about this topic. I know that rational presentation of Krishna consciousness is his life, in his preaching, and because he today is interpreter, he couldn't uh, have a chance to ask some question or tell a few his impressions about your speech. So I would like to invite uh, Rajada Kumar Prabhu to the general audience. I will turn back uh, your interpreter room to the general room. Just a moment. Rajada Kumar Prabhu, вы сейчас здесь в общей комнате. Пожалуйста, да, может быть, у вас был какой-то вопрос или вы что-то бы хотели сказать Махараджу? Thank you very much, Maharaj, for your nice presentation. You are the source of my inspiration for the last maybe 20 years or so. I listened to your classes beginning from the 90s. And, uh, you know, I, I read your books like this uh, Quest for Justice, your uh, Bhagavad Gita guide. I, I have them on my table. <laughs> and uh, uh, I read, uh, I, I heard a lot of your seminars in English and they became the source of uh, my inspiration. Uh, so you are the one of my Shiksha Gurus and I'm very grateful to you. Uh, well, uh, I got some questions, but I don't think uh, now is the right time to ask them because it's already long time. It's already quite late here. Uh, uh, anyway, uh, so uh, I'm trying to a uh, large degree uh, follow your program because uh, I have a project which is called The Most Confidential Knowledge. It's uh, on my YouTube channel. And uh, together with Amala Chandra, we made a few movies, three movies in Russian, uh, which uh, try to present uh, Krishna consciousness in a rational way. The first movie is a uh, who are a human being. We are trying to analyze who is human. The next presentation is unified picture of the world. It's uh, about, you know, universal knowledge and the uh, third presentation is a universal harm uh, universal laws of harmony mm -hmm. so uh, in an intelligent way uh, in a common language without much uh, is called terminology we are trying to present krishna consciousness uh, in a universal uh, scientific to whatever you know <laughs> i am not a scientist but i am trying to do it in a rational way so uh, thank you very much for your inspiration i hope maybe uh, we'll have another chance to meet and uh, have some discussion thank you Hare krishna please accept my humble obeisances thank you thank you very much i um, i mean I, i will just say that it's uh, for me it's a, i really feel it's an honor uh, <laughs> I feel it, it, it's an honor and a real pleasure for me to um, to have the association of, of Russian devotees. I mean, everyone in the world knows that there are many devotees in Russia. And uh, somehow just, you know, we all, Krishna leads us in different ways, but somehow I haven't had as much contact with Russian devotees, but I've heard many, many times how many good devotees there are in Russia. And... Um, so I feel very fortunate. I feel that Krishna is blessing me to be able to speak with all of you. And uh, if I can help you in some way, to me, I feel it's a, it's a blessing for me. Hare Krishna Maharaj, thank you once again for your precious time. Uh, it's the first, very first time when we are Vladivostok far East Russia devotees <laughs> personally meet met with you, so for us it's historical precedent. Uh, I will tell in Russian to uh, devotees. Uh, yes, and tell them it's historical for me too. 
so we hope that we will see you again in the nearest future in such kind of meetings yes thank you very much i really i really am grateful for this opportunity i really do appreciate all the service that you're doing all of you Hare Krishna. So we can Hare. end here, okay. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna Maharaj. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna Maharaj. Hare Krishna.